Now we want to turn to our first story of the show regarding the crimes of kings and queens in the Isle of Great Britain. And we are turning first to India, and we are very happy to be joined as we continue the conversation by Prasanth R., who's a journalist with NewsClick and People's Dispatch. Prasanth, as always, thanks so much for being back with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a very, very interesting topic. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Well, before we jump into it, I want to play a clip from Tucker Carlson, the most popular talk show host in the United States, where he had a message for the people of India about how they should be reacting to their own history. In the real world, the one that we live in, strong countries dominate weak countries, and that trend shows no sign of changing. The very least you can say about the English is that they took their colonial responsibilities seriously. They didn't just take things, they added. When the U.S. government withdrew from Afghanistan after 20 years, we left behind airstrips, shipping containers, and guns. When the British pulled out of India, they left behind an entire civilization, a language, a legal system, schools, churches, and public buildings, all of which are still in use today. Here's the train station the English built in Bombay, for example. There's nothing like that in Washington, D.C. right now, much less in Kabul or Baghdad. Today, India is far more powerful than the U.K., the nation that once ruled it. And yet, after 75 years of independence, has that country produced a single building as beautiful as the Bombay train station that the British colonialists built? No, sadly, it has not. Not one. So despite what they may be claiming on Twitter tonight, the British Empire was more than just genocide. In fact, the British did not commit genocide, except arguably against the Dutch during the Boer War. The British did give the world the Magna Carta and habeas corpus and free speech. They helped end the transatlantic slave trade as well as the ritual murder of widows in India. The British Empire spread Protestant Christianity to the entire world. It published some of the greatest literature ever written and produced the finest manufactured goods ever made anywhere at any time, including now. It was an impressive place run by impressive people. We will see many empires going forward, but we will never see one so benign. There's a lot there, so maybe I'll just ask you, Prasanth, what your reaction is to this clip from America's most popular TV host. I mean, uh, the short answer is basically I don't need to answer it all. You just need to sort of invert everything he said, and that's a 20-minute segment <laughs> for you because you know, every every line just add the you know make it the exact opposite that that's a true story. But you know, I mean, I think I watched this clip yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, at one level, as someone who read basic history textbooks, there was a sense of incredulity and shock. It's a bit amusing now because it's like sixth time watching it, maybe. But uh, you know, then and as a journalist, I was like just sort of at some level astounded because of, you know how someone comments on it's like say me talking about the. Uh, physics and biology of marathon running or something like that because it's so absurd. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> but keeping that aside, uh, it's, I think uh, what Tucker Carlson is saying here is the, is the extreme version. It's very proper, uh, probably politically incorrect to say that in many places because people recognize it as racist and all that. And so people don't say it in that way so much anymore. But there's uh, been a very long history of revisionist you know, uh, history making and myth making about the impact of the British Empire, and uh, it's, it's very much widely prevalent. Even now, there's, especially in the in the UK, I believe there's a fair amount of nostalgia for colonial times. There's this entire school of historians who goes about many of these things. You know, oh, the British bought trains. For some reason, everyone loves trains and trains running on time. It's a, 
Uh, it's a strange fascination. I never get that. It's like, it's interesting because, you know, when you talk about trains and I think in the early 1920s, there was a rebellion in the state I come from in Kerala. And one of the punishments that the British meted out was they basically threw a huge number of people into a very narrow railway, uh, a bogey, a railway car, so to speak. And by the time the train had completed its journey, 64 people uh, had died out of suffocation. So, you know, that's also the history of trains when we talk about India. But I think it's very important to sort of note that this, the school of thought does prevail, but it's very essential to counter it because it's a bit like saying that, you know, if I stick a knife to your throat and you fight back, then I go back home and pat myself on the back for, uh, you know, teaching you how to fight or something like that. But I, I think some numbers are really important in this context. You know, for instance, the fact that the claim he makes the British never committed genocide. I mean, the most obvious answer to it is the 19, the Bengal famine of the 1940s, where, uh, you know, explicitly because of government policies and modern academic studies have proven, proven it that this was a famine which was caused by British imperial policies as opposed to weather conditions, which is how often a lot of famines take place. And this was because the needs of uh, the population were not taken into account. The Indian people were not taken into account. Food was diverted to war needs. Winston Churchill, who's celebrated as a hero, movies are made about him. Specifically, he is believed to have, uh, you know, written that at this point, the needs of the Indians are less important. Even put a note saying, why hasn't Gandhi died when his aides were saying that people died? And this is one end of the colonial spectrum. On the other end, you have the decades immediately after in the you know, 1750s and stuff where another famine takes place, about 10 million people killed right after the British take over uh, the rule of the, the region of Bengal. And all this money was basically just completely siphoned off uh, into the United Kingdom. And I think this is something a lot of modern scholars are pointing out that, uh, you know, the, it's not that uh, the, the whole wealth of the West, as we see today, not only of the United Kingdom, it's important to note because the United Kingdom also served as a source of a lot of capital for the United States, for other countries in Europe. All this money did come from uh, India and other colonies. And India is an important source. The uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going on a rant. <laughs> no, no, no. But, this, is very, uh, this is crucial. The, yeah, the economist Uttar Patnaik has pointed out that I think the numbers are around $45 trillion. That was the amount of money that went from India to the United Kingdom over the course of its colonial history. So whether you look at, you know, the loot and the drain of wealth, whether you look at the kind of atrocities that were committed, whether you look at, you know, at so many levels, colonization's impact continues to this day. And, you know, uh, no one has got to, you know, forget uh, reparations or anything of that sort. No one has even got an apology for some of these atrocities. Yeah, no, I th- that's that's so, so important to point out that $45 trillion number is just like, you can't even really imagine what that amount of wealth looks like. But people like Tucker Carlson, I mean, he's really saying what a lot of people think, but don't say out loud also in the West, which is the entire West is so wealthy. The developing world is so impoverished. Obviously, it must be because the West West did something right. And it's like, no, the West just stole, literally looted the most resource rich areas of the world. Um and, you know, they had to steal it because they had nothing to trade because they don't have anything in the global north, which is, of course, you pointed out the Pitnaiks. I mean, they they make that argument quite well uh, in their book about imperialism. And, you know, just to add about the trains, I mean, one thing that's so fascinating to talk about the trains is those trains were built 
to extract wealth. They weren't built so Indians could travel around India. They were built so that the British could take wealth from the inside of the country to ports so they could literally steal. And the same could be said for, you know, colonies all across Africa as well in the way that Europe, you know, de-developed Africa. But now I'm ranting. I mean, it's just so it's, it's outrageous to hear that mentality. But, you know, I'm curious, what has the conversation been like in India? Um, because I imagine, you know, the West has a very good global propaganda apparatus, particularly through Hollywood film, right, that's able to project this idea of the West as being this kind of like paradise sort of place that's better than the global South. And, you know, as somebody who lives in the Middle East, that resonates with people sometimes. And so you do see, unfortunately, in some places, a certain segment of the population does revere the British Empire a little bit because, you know, of historical amnesia and that sort of propaganda. So I'm curious if, if that, if there's like a debate inside India or is it kind of like across the board, people understand the British Empire was bad. So, I mean, I think at one level, there is, of course, uh, the, the impact of the national, the freedom struggle still continues to the state to a large extent. And we have to be very clear about it because all of us grew up reading these, uh, you know, stories in our history textbooks. They were the kind of, <laughs> they were the kind of dramas and plays we did at school, all that kind of stuff. So there's a long history and the national freedom struggle was very much embedded in, I think, uh, all of our minds from a very young age as well. So uh, on the one hand, that is very strongly there. So like I said, it's even your basic uh, history textbooks in India always make that aspect very clear. There's barely any uh, in in how people study history. There's at least at a school level or a college level, there's not, there's not really too much of nostalgia, so to speak. It's very clearly identified what the British uh, exactly did to India. A very important thing I must also mention is that, uh, you know, today we talk a lot about two aspects. One is, a rivalry in South Asia, the constantly, the constant tensions that are there, India, Pakistan, for instance, and or for that matter. So in, in all of these rivalries very strongly uh, were influenced by what the British did. I mean, there's a story that the person who was finally responsible for drawing the line between India and Pakistan did so in about uh, five weeks or so, and he had never traveled east of France before he actually went and drew that line. And, you know, uh, say, I think 13 million people were impacted in 1947 because of the, those lines, which just destroyed, uh, you know, an entire generation's lives and traumatized them in so many ways, in addition to deaths. But for that matter, even the what, what in South Asia we call communalism, which is a very uniquely South Asian word in some senses, the kind of religious polarization-based politics, a lot of this is completely comes from the British times because the British very early on decided that their best way to stay in, uh, in control in India was to try to pit the Hindus and the Muslims to, against each other, especially the elite sections. So for the longest time, that has been their policy. This was their stated policy, by the way. It's important to note that the fact that British officials long ago said that just as the Romans had the policy of divide and rule, uh, this is our policy in India as well. And uh, that continues to have an impact today because this, the, the kind of religious violence, the kind of religious tensions that we see today, uh, the kind of majoritarian politics that we see today, all of it stems from that British time period. So in answer to your question, while at one level, I think, uh, of course, a lot of people do watch The Crown. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, what do you call it, tabloid gossip, which is happily consumed by all of us. But that's one aspect of it. But I think at a deeper level, maybe one issue that we, have, we are dealing with at, uh, in, in some ways to connect it to domestic aspect is the fact that today we are also ruled by uh, 
those the people of those political ideology who actually did compromise with the British. So, you know, there's a very uh, interesting current connect as well, which you're not, I think, still entirely dealt with. That conversation is still kind of going on. But uh, as far as nostalgia goes, it's, I think, way, way less prevalent than in many other parts of the world, because uh, especially immediately after independence, this notion of uh, us having to struggle, Indians having to struggle to throw out the British, of having defeated the mightiest empire in the world through a mass movement, because this was not a compromise. Uh, of course, the elites were involved, but this was not a power handling handing deal uh, between the British and certain elites. This was really a mass movement. And very important to note, a mass movement with workers, the farmers, the struggling masses of India's people were very actively involved. It was the kind of utter despair they faced that brought them continuously to the streets, that made them sacrifice their lives, that made them they spend long years in very hideous jails in all kinds of condition. Men, women, children, uh, across uh, across caste, across religions. It was a, it was a it, it was a powerful, inspiring movement in many senses, and it is equally true of many countries across the world as well. The way they overthrew their colonizers, it was not a like I said, it's not it, it was not a dinner party. It was uh, freedom was snatched. Uh, st- struggling from the British, and which is which is why again ending with Tucker Carlson's notion that uh, you know they gave us a civilization, which I think is one of the most offensive things he says. But also the fact that whether it be free press, whether it be habeas corpus, whether it be democracy, all these were not given by the British. They were sn- snatched. They were pulled after decades of struggle from them. Uh, they were uh, the British were unwilling to give us any of these. Uh, you know, generations of Indians, generations of people across the world, generations of people struggled. To actually get this through militant means, through uh, armed struggles, through peaceful struggles, through a number of ways. And all of this formed the tapestry, the base of which countries like India and so many other countries which fought off colonialism are formed today. No, I think that's such an important point. And, and it's like the one thing that Tucker Carlson, sort of his historical timeline, he says, well, of course, now India is more powerful than the UK. And it's like, yes, it's after British colonialism left, India built itself into one of the major global powers. Uh, and But obviously one of the oldest civilizations, you know, in the history of the world. I mean, there's so many different levels to it. But, you know, really quickly, I did want to touch on this issue. And I'm glad you mentioned the issue of, of sort of the freedom struggle and historical memory, because it's been interesting this week for me uh, in watching the Indian media to see how aggressively many of the forces, you know, more to the right, more affiliated with the ruling party have been trying to say, oh, it wasn't just everybody else. You know, we were also in there. We were also involved. So, I mean, talk about that a little bit more if you could, because I think it's an important thing because it seems now, you know, I know the flag changing for the Navy that, you know, the prime minister and others are really trying to use this anti-colonial agenda to sort of speak to the rest of the world and define themselves as something that certainly perhaps the history doesn't bear out. Right. So the uh, Indian right wing, like I said, it has a long tradition of, uh, say, colla- having it, it is in relationship with uh, the British, with colonialism itself, which is very ambivalent in some senses. And if you take some of the examples, uh, going to outright collaboration as well, because for many of these sections in the Hindu right wing, especially, they saw uh, the Muslims or the, or the years of Muslim rule before as a bigger threat. And, you know, they were really concerned about the idea that what we needed was to establish a Hindu nation as opposed to the idea of, a, say, a secular country or of a country of uh, all communities that the mainstream national movement did propose. So there was this constant sense of uh, tension that has always existed between these two strands. 
And this has always been a problem for uh, the right wing in India because having no real record to speak of during the freedom struggle, they really sort of, you know, always uh, struggle to sort of say, lay a claim on uh, uh, say the, the history of India, so to speak, the history of modern India, so to speak. So one way for them has to sort of uh, been to uh, say claim uh, this history or you know this history of monarchs of uh, kings of the 17th and 18th centuries and draw that kind of tradition and then bring it uh, under the umbrella of a Hindu uh, say rebellion so to speak. So for instance, you have one of the most famous revolutionary heroes of India, Bhagat Singh, who had a you know who was uh, who was a communist. Who was in, who was hanged by the British at a very young age, uh, who just before he was being hanged was reading a book by Lenin. And, you know, uh, his writings extremely inspirational. His most famous work, of course, which is most well known is, you know, why I'm an atheist. So that really pretty much explains his point of view. But also he did mass movement work against religious polarization. But if you look at the right wing, for instance, there's been this huge attempt to sort of say convert him into some kind of a, a icon of a, a kind of right-wing nationalism which is which does, which kept removes all of these elements as well and there are a lot of other people for instance who uh, worked in the you know who were active parts of the uh, national movement there have been various attempts to uh, include them to sort of bring them under the hindu umbrella and portray that as the civilizational tendency which sort of fought off the muslims he fought off the british etc etc so this is actually a very devious sort of political agenda that has been going on there's been a lot of conflict over history in uh, recent times in India, especially since 2014, when the Narendra Modi came to, government came to power, a lot of rewriting of the textbooks that has been taking place. You know, if you look at some of the, uh, say, uh, the kind of artwork, the kind of culture, the kind of television that comes out of it, a lot of it focuses on this notion of, uh, uh, you know, a kind of a very different narrative from really what actually happened. So. There's this kind of revisionism, revisionism which takes place as well, and which is why I said I think it goes in parallel. The kind of nostalgia for uh, the British, the British colonialism on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have this kind of nostalgia for uh, a pure Hindu India, uh, neither of which, neither of which really existed, and the two kind of actually very well go hand in hand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, amazing history, super interesting history and really crucial for, I think, people to understand in, in this context with all of the pageantry that's all over the TV here in the United States. But Prasanth, as always, we really appreciate you being willing to join. I couldn't more highly recommend the work that you all do at NewsClick and People's Dispatch Fantastic on covering all of these issues in the subcontinent and around the world. And we just really appreciate you giving us some of your time here on the Freedom Side. Thank you so much, Eugene Radio. Mm-hmm.